Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and it's hard to believe it's now 10 years since Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. In that time we have heard hundreds and hundreds of true stories covering every area of life. We loved it then, we love it now. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, all told at various Zoom events in the past year. Our first story comes from a regular contributor, Paul Bond, and he told this story from his home in, well, I'll let him tell you. When I was at secondary school, St. McCartan's College in Monaghan, the true centre of the universe, our English teacher, Mr. Lee, would sometimes read out my essays to the class as an example of how to use your imagination and be different. He was trying to make the point that in a state exam, the poor examiner would be reading hundreds of essays and would be ready to stab someone with his red pen after the third one if they were all written in the same style and invariably, they were all written in the same style. If your essay was funny or different, you stood a very good chance of getting extra marks just out of relieving his boredom. He hastened to add that this use of humor and imagination only applied to the essay question, remembering my recent exam answer on procrastination in Hamlet, Discuss, which I wrote three pages on without having the first clue what procrastination actually meant but was sure it was something to do with Danish ingenuity and argued quite persuasively, I thought, that it had led directly to the eventual invention of Lego. I got an F. After I left school, I don't recall writing anything at all for either my own or anyone else's amusement until about 10 years ago when I started writing a weekly blog for the fourth largest workwear store in Monaghan. After the third week, it stopped mentioning workwear or anything work-related and simply dealt with random things that occurred to me, a potted history of Monaghan and various events that appealed to me. Music featured regularly, either concerts that I'd attended, a random fact about an album cover, or a rather convincing tale involving a visiting artist and Monaghan. I wrote about the time George Harrison had got lost as a young boy in Dublin and met Patrick Kavanagh, who inspired him to write something. I wrote about how the tradition of the Christmas tree sprung from a gift from Lord Rossmore in Monaghan to a homesick Prince Albert. I wrote about the time my granda took Johnny Cash to McKenna's bar. I wrote about the real Sergeant Pepper McGuinness who came from Clontiberton, Monaghan and served in India, sponsored schools and books in both places and how Paul McCartney's grandfather had told him this story as he had learned to read using the books Sergeant Pepper had sponsored in the National School in Clontibret. And most wonderfully of all, I'd written about the time I'd fallen asleep on the bus to Galway, listening to a mixtape on my Walkman and woke up to find a strange English chap sitting beside me, critiquing the tape listing with a red pen. I called it Bowie on the bus. All of those stories were thoroughly well researched. All of the timelines and events were entirely plausible. It's just that you wouldn't have found an actual record of them anywhere else. Lots of people enjoyed them. Some people ignored my introduction of each one as a tale and considered them gospel. 
Monaghan people abroad took particular delight in informing everyone that the Christmas tree originated in Monaghan, and I took delight in their delight. But then I was asked for permission to publish my Sergeant Pepper story on a Beatles fan website in Liverpool, and I had to tell them that it was just that, a story. They were bitterly disappointed. Shortly afterwards, a local historian also wanted to include my Johnny Cash story in an anthology of local history, and he was absolutely disgusted with me when I told him that, although it was entirely likely that if my granda had met Johnny Cash, that they would indeed have ended up in McKenna's bar, and I like to think that they had, neither granda nor Johnny Cash had ever mentioned it. So I decided from then on, I would only write true stories in my weekly blog or at the very, very least, mostly true stories. And I did, more or less. Six years ago, I took my son Jake to see an up and coming band, The Stripes, playing upstairs in McKenna's Bar on Dublin Street in Monaghan. The Stripes were a four piece outfit from Cavan who were getting a lot of press and had been signed up by Elton John's record label and featured in a Channel 4 documentary. They were brilliant. They'd played venues all over the UK and Japan, and even played at a private bash for the Rolling Stones. And now here they were playing upstairs in McKenna's Bar on Park Street in Monaghan. Attending gigs, the standard format of any venue is that you're either in some sort of raised tier looking down on the band, or at least all on the same level looking up at the band, not in McKenna's. One third of the room is two steps higher than the rest, with a lovely little wooden railing on either side of the gap to see the band. The band play towards the back of the raised part, and this works fine if everyone is reserved and seated. Again, not in McKenna's. When we went upstairs, the lower part was packed with young kids who'd obviously never been to McKenna's before. The upper tier was empty, except for the band's equipment, which was set up and ready at the back. We marched up the two steps and took up position with our backs to the little railing. Just as the band came out to play to a roof lifting roar of anticipation, I got a poke in the back. You're very rude, someone was shouting at me. Pardon, I said, turning round to see an irate young girl. You're very rude, she roared. I've been here for two hours to get a good spot and you just waltz in at the last minute. The face was flying off her. Why don't you come up? Can I, she said, smiling now. Yes, of course, I said over the roar of Peter Hannon's Jack Hammer bass playing. I thought it was reserved for family. Are you family? No. What? I was now missing the band's first song, roaring pleasantries and explanations to this young lady. I'm Pete's uncle, I lied. If anyone says anything to you, just say I said it was okay. Can my friends come up with me? Yes. 25 girls immediately mobbed the upper area. They had a ball. The band were brilliant. And when it was over, they all came back out and signed autographs and posed for photos. My son and I both had our photos taken with the band. And that was that. I wrote about it in my blog and thought no more about it. A few months later, I was involved in organizing a business seminar in Monaghan for secondary school students. At an early planning meeting, someone suggested that we get the stripes to play at it. Could you ask them, Paul? A lady asked. Why me? I thought you're related to one of them. No. Are you sure? Yes. How weird. I'm sure someone said they'd read somewhere that you get to all their gigs for free 
because you're an uncle of one of them. I thought no more about that either. Another year later, the Stripes were playing some small rehearsal gigs and ended up back in McKenna's. This time, Jake and I were joined by my daughter, Robin, for her first gig. The band were even better this time. The place was even more crowded and we again had the best spot. When the gig was over, the lads all came back out for photos and autographs. Robin got a photo with each of them in turn. When it came to getting a photo with Pete O'Hanlon, Jake had an album with him and that he wanted signed, and we got chatting to Pete for a few minutes. We mentioned that we'd seen them play in the Olympia in Dublin and here a couple of years previously. I mentioned about the young girl and the confusion over being his uncle. Are you the big bollocks that writes the blogs, he said. Jake and Robin laughed. Yes, I replied. My mum gave out to me about telling random people in Monaghan that I was related to them. She said that a friend of hers had told her she'd read about it in the newspaper. Fame at last. My stories had made it the whole way to Cavan. <laughs> That's so brilliant. Are those blogs still available somewhere? Um, yeah, yes. Yes, I have. Uh, yes, it's uh, uh, Bricks, B-R-I-X, Bricks Workwear, and the more recent ones are on the superjetrobotdinosaurs.com. Thanks so much, Paul. What a talent for telling true and tall stories. If you want to know more about the Stripes, go to Wikipedia. They're spelt with a Y. And you can see Paul telling that story on our YouTube channel, where you can watch practically all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks going right back to April of last year. Okay, next up is a story from June of last year, when we were all full of hope that things were getting better. Oh, well. This story from Miriam Ulliman will warm your heart. So what I should tell you first is that I am not an animal lover, though neither am I an animal hater. When I disclose this fact to anyone, I always follow it up quickly with, but I would never, ever hurt an animal. We had dogs when I was growing up, but I wasn't interested in them. Their personalities, their habits, exercising or otherwise, I was simply indifferent. With this backdrop in mind, you might be surprised to hear that my rescue story actually is about a dog and occurred in the most unlikely of settings, the foyer of a multiplex cinema near Parnell Square in Dublin. I'm just standing there waiting for my husband to get the cinema tickets and I become aware of four north inner city Dublin boys about 10 or 11 years of age in a little group with a dog on a lead. It's a Jack Russell. It did look cute and a little bewildered and if it had had a longer tail, its level of fear or otherwise might have been easier to read. The group conversation that I hear is going along the lines of what to do with the dog. The options being visited ranged from tie it to the railings outside while they went into the cinema, or the possibility of smuggling it in there with them. In my work life, I've met and known lots of kids like these ones. Wily, streetwise, great kids with big hearts and crazy on thought through ideas. So as I was standing close to them, I ventured to ask, what's the story with the dog? It followed us, miss. Clearly they pegged me alongside their teachers. From where I asked, it just followed them. And I remember that there was some obscure story about how they had acquired the lead. I pointed out that someone would be really sad and worried about their dog, but this was of no interest to the lads. They stood looking at the dog and I could see that the initial idea of the mutt was fast losing its charm. 
Dogs are not just for Christmas, the slogan goes. This dog was not even for a couple of hours. Reality and unsavoury, the unsavoury taste of responsibility was settling on the group. They disappeared into a little huddle for a tactical conversation and clearly being of the view that there was always an opportunity to be had out of a crisis, when they re-emerged, one of them looked at me and asked, do you want to buy it, miss? With a growing feeling that this was not going to be a perfect partnership for the dog, I found myself asking, how much? There were some furtive non-verbal exchanges and seemingly out of nowhere, one of them conjured up the price, 10 euro. Okay, I said, and my husband, having just arrived on the scene, gave me a look which I clearly interpreted to read, have you gone out of your mind? The situation and all of its ramifications settled on all concerned, but clearly the lads had moved on when one of them looked at me and asked, so how much will each of us get if you give us 10 euro? And quickly I did the maths. I told them they would each get 2 euro 50. After the briefest of moments and some nodding in agreement, I now owned, or rather I now temporarily had responsibility for this dog. I was surprised, but not as surprised as my husband, who with, I have to say, quiet delight took control of the lead as we left the cinema with unused cinema tickets. We approached a lone Garda after our exit and he simply looked vacant when it was suggested to him that this might be a situation that would interest him. This clearly was not a Garda matter. I had made my bed, now lie in it, was the unspoken message. My husband's surprise was nothing to that of my kids and their partners when we arrived home. Within minutes, in our dog-unfriendly space, family members were drooling over the animal. Runs to the shop for food, identification of a soft, luxurious towel on which it might lie, endless walks outside to ensure that the floors and carpets would remain pee-free. I noted uneasily that I seemed to be the only person who really was on a mission to find its rightful home. I was frantically finding apps and websites called Find a Dog and such like. People responded to a found dog notice to tell me about their found dog. Emotions ran high. Dog lovers who were neither looking for a lost dog nor offering a home for a found one were in abundance. And there was a sad moment too when a family with young kids thought that this was their lost and loved dog only to be disappointed when we exchanged photographs. But increasingly and worryingly, I noticed that the dog was been loved into our home. There were discussions about a possible name. And while others tried out several names, I was determined to remain aloof, simply rubbing rather than patting its head and referring it to it as dog. I was not going to get attached. The group desire for a name persisted, however, and by default, on the following day, the dog did get a name. A rugby international was been watched on TV. The dog cozied up on my daughter's partner's lap, only to be mercilessly ejected into the air with gusto when Fergus McFadden scored a magical try for Ireland. Its name, the group decided, excluding me, would be Fergus. So Fergus it was, and he was getting more and more embedded in my life. 
Arrangements were speedily put in place for a daily rota to ensure that someone would be home with the dog while we were out at work. A bed had been purchased. Toys had and continued to appear. And water and food bowls were in situ. I remained, however, resolute. If I had purposefully gone looking for a dog, fair enough. But this was not a planned adoption. And our lives were not suited to providing a happy long-term home for a dog. A week had gone by now, by now and I was increasingly unnerved at what was emerging. The longer this went on, the more likely it seemed that Fergus would become a permanent fixture in our lives. But like the four original procurers, the lads, I trusted and waited for a solution to emerge. And sure enough, on day eight, it came to pass. My neighbour Bridget from rural Wexford knocked the door. Like all the neighbours, she had heard the story. Her mother, it transpired, had been recently widowed and was lonely. She had a big working farm dog that spent its life outdoors, but she wanted a small dog to keep her company indoors. Joy of joys. Never was an arrangement made so quickly. And so it was on the following day that Fergus exited our lives for a road trip to Wexford, where, according to the regular updates, he fell into a loving home where he is king of the castle and he now is known as Sam. So yes, even if I say so, he was very cute. And yes, members of my family would have kept him, but I truly believe the ending was for the best. As a footnote, I will tell you that my kids and my husband have subsequently admitted that he peed all over the place during his stay and how they had colluded to keep this from me furtively washing up after him each time. As rescue stories go though, I very happily think this one has win-win written all over it. Except of course, for the original owners who I hope trust the cosmos enough and the goodness of others enough to believe that their dog lived happily ever after. Thank you so much, Miriam. What a lovely ending to a lovely story. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now here's our third story. Richard O'Leary told it at an event in February where we teamed up with LGBT Heritage NI and the group Working With Pride. And the theme, I'll let our storyteller explain. Thank you, Paul. There may be a reason why you put me on after the nine o'clock watershed. Tonight's theme is body, mind, spirit. Those of you who know me may expect me to tell you a story about the spirit. After all, I do live in a house called the Cloisters. Or if not the spirit, you may expect me, the former Oxford Don, to tell a story about the mind. But no, I want to tell you a story about the body, my body. Relax, I will not be doing a reprise of my autobiographical show, which was called Cut, Adult Circumcision for the Uptight. Tonight's story is about my dress in the workplace. 
When I was a student at college, I liked to wear bright clothes. Jumpers with rainbow stripes, trousers with legs rolled up to reveal orange socks, and colorful shirts. Like this shirt I'm wearing tonight. This cotton shirt of pink and orange squares. I bought it in a secondhand shop in Dublin in the mid 1980s. It says on the label of the shirt, Seidensticker. Seidensticker is a German word meaning silk embroiderer. Seidensticker is a well-known shirt brand in Germany. Even today, you can Google Seidensticker shirts and will read online, and I quote, since the foundation of the Seidensticker group in 1919, Seidensticker shirts, created with great passion, seized the spirit of the time without submitting to fast-moving trends. I could never be accused of submitting to fast-moving trends. The brand is positioned in the formal and semi-formal segment with business and festive looks, as well as sophisticated options for every occasion. Note, it says formal and semi-formal option for every occasion. How could I go wrong? Fresh out of college in 1986, I joined the civil service. I know that may surprise you, but I was a civil servant once, an executive officer in Ireland's Department of Communications. Many boys dream of being an airline pilot. I wasn't one of those boys. Therefore, I was somewhat surprised as a youthful civil servant in Dublin to be assigned to be secretary to the airport's construction committee. Every morning, my clerical assistant would bring to my desk a pile of dusty manila files stuffed with correspondence on Ireland's airports. Each evening, I would hand her back a slightly heavier pile of files. This was the 1980s and Ireland was in recession. Money was tight and very little actually happened at airports construction. The most exciting item I could hope to cross my desk would be something like the upgrade to baggage reclaim facilities at Cork Airport, which wasn't very exciting. One day in spring 1987, my line manager announced that we were to have a new principal officer. I knew from her voice when she described him that she was fearful. He was from outside, from the no-nonsense Department of Finance. He was not from rural Ireland like most civil servants, but was a Dubliner. She intimated that he was a bit less refined than his elderly predecessor. A colleague whispered his nickname to me. His nickname was Rambo. Rambo was the lead character, a tough USA Army veteran in the 1985 movie of the same name and played by Sylvester Stallone. Rambo's office was on the floor below mine and I was summoned to meet him. He filled his office, his bulging flesh bursting through his white shirt and heaped over his buckle. His conversation was peppered with expletives in the Dublin working class vernacular. Thick black hair brushed to the side of his sweaty forehead. He oozed testosterone. With a single command, Rambo cut my daily diet of boring manila files. Red tape was slashed and littered the floor. Thin-skinned managers yelped and scampered. Our next meeting of the airport's construction committee was short and efficient. It went well. So I was surprised when Rambo again summoned me to his office. What? 
What could I have done or not done? Rambo drew my attention to the two Irish military officers on the committee. Normally I'm partial to a man in uniform, but these middle-aged male officers looked rather dull and had barely noticed them. Rambo told me that they had been unhappy, unhappy with my dress. I hadn't been wearing a dress. Rambo growled at me, wear a proper shirt and tie. I was dumbfounded, a proper shirt. Obviously these Irish military officers didn't appreciate the beauty of Seidensticker. Or maybe pink just wasn't their color. I calmly explained to Rambo that this was the way I dressed. I was clean and tidy and just a bit colorful. Rambo wasn't having any of it. He impressed on me, you're in the civil service now. You're in the civil service now. I was reminded of the hit song of the previous year by the band Status Quo, in the army now. I was starting to empathize with the original Rambo character in the Sylvester Stallone movie, returning to small town America, not looking for trouble, coming up against a local sheriff and military who didn't like any man with an independent spirit. My line manager dropped hints about me wearing a conventional shirt and tie. However, I recalled some of the thinkers I had read at college during my degree in history. Writers like John Flugel, who in the 1930s was a member of the Men's Dress Reform Society. The Men's Dress Reform Society pointed out that by the early 20th century, men's clothing had become depressing. They claimed that since the end of the 18th century, men had been ignoring the colorful, elaborate and varied forms of masculine ornamentation. Maybe I was just doing my bit to restore some healthy masculine ornamentation. On the day of the meeting of the airport's construction committee, I turned up for work wearing this very same Zeidensticker pink shirt. 10 minutes before the meeting was due to start and my line manager was exchanging anxious glances with my clerical assistant. I picked up my manila file and shoulder bag, headed for the meeting. I stopped off on the way and popped into the gents. I stepped into the cubicle and I closed the door. I unbuttoned my shirt. I stripped off my colorful shirt. I put on a white shirt. I took out a necktie, a necktie with blue and black stripes. I tied it around my neck. I stepped out of the cubicle. When I entered the meeting room, I thought I saw Rambo and the military officers smirking with satisfaction when they noticed a newly arrived eunuch. I felt I could almost hear them say, you're in the civil service now. I never liked this tie. Uh, during the meeting, I glanced enviously at my female colleague. She was wearing a colorful blouse without a tie. After the meeting, I returned to my desk. I retrieved the civil service memo, which had been circulated about the redeployment of staff. 
My line manager scoffed at the idea that anyone in our department of communications might be willing to voluntarily transfer to the very busy department of social welfare, which dealt with the unemployed. However, I wrote out my application for transfer and sent it in the internal post to Rambo. His reply bounced back. He would not release me. Later, I heard a furious barrage of expletives from the floor below, or so I imagined, as I was the only person from the entire staff of the Department of Communications who had volunteered for the redeployment and someone had to go, my request had to be approved. I enjoyed working in my new Department of Social Welfare and my new principal officer and I worked well together. My new colleagues admired my colourful Zeidensticker shirts. Richard, that was brilliant. And thanks for giving us the title of this podcast. Oh, and I really recommend you check that out on our YouTube channel to see Richard in all his quick change glory. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10by9.com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. Or just drop us a line to say hello to our email address, story at 10 by 9com or all the usual social media channels. We love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out Podrick's new project, The Corimila Podcast. You can get it at all the usual podcasty places. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So it's all my fault. Thanks to you for listening, but thanks most of all to Paul Bond, Maria Mulliman and Richard O'Leary. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.